So thanks for being here this morning. Um, today, in a, in a minute, I'll invite Kate up to read our text. Um, some of us have those friends or family members that just have to go there. Um, they always have to bring up that embarrassing story, and you can feel it coming, and then afterwards you're like, why did you have to go there? I think that sometimes Jesus had to go there in his conversations. He was often going to marginalized people. He was often talking about the poor, widows, women, children, lepers, and Samaritans. In this story um, that we're going to look at today in the scripture, it's about a time that Jesus had to go there. But he went there literally. He had to go through Samaria. So, Kate, if you would come up and read our scripture, that would be great. This is from John 4, 1 through 30 and 39 through 42. Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making more disciples and baptizing more than John, although Jesus' disciples were baptizing, not Jesus himself. Therefore, he left Judea and went back to Galilee. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey, and so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, Why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. Jesus responded, If you recognized God's good gift and who is saying to you, Give me some water to drink, you would be asking him and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave this well to us, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and will never need to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. You are right to say I don't have a husband, Jesus answered. You've had five husbands, and the man you are with now isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. The woman said, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it is necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming and is here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The Father looks for those who worship him this way. God is spirit, and it is necessary to worship God in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will teach everything to us. Jesus said to her, I am the one who speaks with you. Just then, Jesus' disciples arrived and were shocked that he was talking with a woman. 
but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? The woman put down her water jar and went into the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? They left the city and were on their way to see Jesus. Many Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's word when she testified, he told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the savior of the world. The word of God for the people of God. So I love the book of John. In the book of John, I feel like we really see the person of Jesus, this character in a divine story. But it wasn't until recently that I started liking this particular story in John. Um, having recently changed my mind about women in ministry, um, the treatment of women in the book of John really stands out to me. I heard a friend at Mount Gilead Baptist Church preach on this message and he said that this might be the first time that the woman at the well had had such a conversation with a man, a conversation that was respectful and it was about political, social, religious, and personal issues. When I see the surprise of the woman at the well at Jesus asking her for a drink of water, I remember my surprise at being asked to pray before a meal at an InterVarsity Christian Fellowship meeting. Because in the church I grew up in, it was always the men that had to pray for the meals. And I remember my surprise when my supervisor and my pastor and my godly male friends asked me a question, and I realized that it wasn't some kind of test that I needed to pass on my theology or my political positions, but that it was a genuine question, that they believed that they had something to learn from me as much as I had something to learn from them. I definitely remember my surprise the first time I was asked to preach at Oak Church a year ago. So in asking for a drink of water from this woman, Jesus was telling her that she had something to offer. And that's just a gender dynamic that's going on. Um, this woman was at an intersectional place of being marginalized not only for her gender, but also for her uh, ethnicity and her religion. And as a white woman and a white Christian in the US, that's probably a place that I can try to understand, but that I'm not going to experience. So my confession to you is that I haven't always liked this passage. Um, and it took me a while to figure out why when I was working through it um, as I was preparing for this, uh, for this Sunday. Um, and I think that the reason why is because we have a tendency to mistreat the woman in this passage. Uh, we see that she had five husbands and we assume that she was a loose woman. We see that she's at the well alone in the middle of the day and we assume that she's an outcast. Um, I wanna help us reimagine the possibilities for this woman. Those things might be true, but it's also possible that the five husbands weren't her fault. Maybe she was a widow five times, that would be pretty awful. Maybe she was divorced through no fault of her own. Men had a lot more power in the marriage in those days. Um, it's possible that her husbands had always moved on for another, another woman, a more advantageous situation. I wonder if we owe an apology to this woman. I can't help but think of um, someone like maybe Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, if I didn't tell you Dietrich Bonhoeffer's name first, but I told you that there was this man who was a spy, he was a conspirator, he was plotting to assassinate a world leader, um, a leader of his own country, and he was sentenced to capital punishment for it, you'd probably assume that he was a traitor and a murderer 
sort of the worst of sinners and criminals. But then if you know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and you know that the person that he was trying to assassinate was Hitler, then you know that he was a devout man that loved the Lord and that was wrestling with how to live faithfully in a very tumultuous time. So I think that we all try to give Dietrich Bonhoeffer the benefit of the doubt. And I think that we can do that for the woman at the well. Um, it's natural for us to assume the worst about people um, and to not try to learn about their social, historical, and personal context. Um, I think that it's of God to turn that upside down and to try to understand where they're coming from. So I'd love you to join me in reimagining the woman at the well with me. We don't really know that much of her story, and there is a broad range of possibilities about her. But let's just assume the best and, that realize, and realize that she is someone that was marginalized by the cultural norms of her day. Um, but she's actually quite savvy when it comes to religious and political issues, and we see that in her conversation with Jesus. So as much as we might wonder why the woman at the well um, was there by herself that day, I think the real question is, why was Jesus there? She says Jesus had to go through Samaria. But did he really have to? Uh, most Jews would not have gone through Samaria. Um, you see, there's this long and bitter history between Jews and Samaritans. Um, and if you're taking notes, you might want to jot down a few references, and you could look into this this week. I really got pulled into the history of this relationship um, between these two people groups. Um, so in 2 Kings 17, around 720 BC, Assyria conquers and resettles the northern kingdom of Israel. So they take the Israelites out of the northern kingdom as captives, and they bring in other people groups and recolonize Israel. Um, these other people groups didn't worship the Lord. The remaining Israelites that were in the northern kingdom intermarried with them and also took on some of their religious practices. So in Ezra 4 and 450 BC, um, when the Israelites are sent back to Jerusalem and they want to rebuild, and they want to rebuild the temple, the Samaritan people, who are now this intermixed people group, want to help build the temple. But the Israelites refuse to let them help. They see them as unworthy of being able to do that because of their... Um, because of the religious practices and the intermarriage. Um, and so the Samaritans weren't too happy and they retaliated. Um, and then they built a rival temple, an alternative place of worship. Um, in 129 BC, a Jewish general attacked Samaria and destroyed their rival temple. So they destroyed the place that they had to worship. And so the friction continues to grow between these two groups over centuries. Um, and we know that when two groups of people start to fear each other and to hate each other, um, the group with more power will oppress the other group. Then the oppressing group will start to build structures and systems, um, such as segregation, which was definitely happening in this story, um, that maintain the oppression. And those structures are most often maintained with violence or the threat of violence, and they're also often responded to with violence. And this causes the fears to continue to grow um, to increase and in the gulf to widen between the groups of people. So by the time Jesus is showing up at the well, there is this long and embittered history between Jews and Samaritans. It's a dividing wall, if you will. That's why it's important when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan that he didn't just call it the story of a good person. I kind of imagine that that story probably really got under the skin of the disciples and other people who are following Jesus. He took a person that would have been criminalized and made him the good guy in this story. Later in Jesus' ministry, um, in Luke 9, 51 to 56, 
James and John want to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan town because they refused hospitality to Jesus and his followers. So I just imagine that the disciples were probably pretty uncomfortable with this little trip through Samaria. Um, we know that most Jews would have taken a much longer road. I guess they didn't know that they could have just bought themselves some cars and built a highway over or around the parts of the world that they didn't want to see, that they hoped to avoid. And as much as I feel like I relate to the woman at the well, though, I have to admit I also relate to the disciples in this story. As a white American and a Christian in the South, I'm used to being in the majority. And I can remember, um, well, some of you were here when Christina Cleveland preached, and she talked about traveling to South America with a group of white students who weren't really aware of the white privilege that they had and how it was impacting their interactions in a country where they weren't in the majority anymore. Um, I traveled to Kenya um, a couple of years ago, and I remember that even though I experienced white privilege, I also found it very exhausting to be in the minority, um, to not be able to blend in um, to my surroundings. I, I really hate to always pick on Peter, but I can imagine that he might have been walking around with his hand tucked into his robe, resting in the sword hilt, um, just kind of ready you know, to lop off someone's ear maybe if anything seemed to be going wrong. So with the fear and the dehumanization of the Samaritans, the disciples um, were probably uncomfortable, and they were entering Samaria with a lot of baggage. Um, seeing Samaritans as people who were less than, who were dangerous, and who were unclean. So I think it goes without saying that the disciples were probably coming into Samaria and didn't have the greatest entry posture. Um, so I want to talk for a minute about what entry posture can look like and when it's not good and when it's good. So um, there are some bookmarks, and we're going to put a slide up here that matches the bookmarks. So on the bookmarks, it's double-sided, but one side says approaching differences. So if you guys can share those, pass them down the pew, take a look at it. And then we have it up on this slide. Um, I'm not sure how easy that is to see. So um, I work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is a campus ministry. I specifically work with grad students at Duke. Um, and so and this, um, this is a diagram that we use frequently in our training, and we also sometimes use with our students. And so on the top half of the diagram, we see this green uh, line. And on the bottom half, we see a red line. And so we actually use the terminology green lining and red lining within InterVarsity when we're talking about how we're approaching cultural differences. And so when you're greenlining, you come in with an approach of openness, acceptance, trust, and adaptability. But then, no matter what, you run into these inevitable um, situations that lead to dissonance. And that's the giant splat in the middle of the card. It's not really showing up on the screen. And that dissonance will be associated with frustration, misunderstanding, confusion, tension, embarrassment, and aggression. I'm like a pro at the embarrassment part. But then we have a choice when we get into this mess um, of how we're going to respond. And so if you're greenlining, you can respond by observing, inquiring, listening, and initiating. And the outcome is going to be understanding, empathy, and deepening relationships. However, if you're redlining, then your approach starts with suspicion, fear, superiority, and prejudice. And then when you encounter this giant mess of these inevitable um, outcomes, then 
you're going to probably come out responding with criticism, rationalization, and you'll begin to isolate yourself um, from these differences that are overwhelming you. And the result will be alienation, withdrawal, and broken relationships. So I would, I would offer that the uh, disciples are redlining in this scenario. Um, and I think that they're redlining for a few reasons. First of all, we know that the disciples were not at the well with Jesus because they went into town to buy food. And when they came back, they brought food back. However, someone else in the story also goes into town. The Samaritan woman goes into town. And when she's there, she invites the entire town to come back and meet Jesus. What were the disciples doing? I guess that their imaginations were too small um, or their prejudice was too great to imagine that God could be at work in the Samaritan town where the Samaritan people would be interested in meeting Jesus. Not only that, um, but when the disciples came back and they're shocked to see Jesus speaking to this woman, and that is kind of fair, it was actually really scandalous for Jesus to be talking to a woman alone. Um, But they were not just shocked, they were also speechless. And they were not demonstrating openness or acceptance. They weren't initiating or inquiring. It actually seems like their presence was so uncomfortable that the Samaritan woman just had to get out of Dodge. She takes back off back to the village. Um, I mentioned that I work with grad students um, in ministry at Duke, and I'm a part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And uh, this reminds me um, of a time when one of my colleagues was talking to a group of students about how to engage around the Black Lives Matter movement on campus. Um, at the end of his comments, he asked if anyone had questions or thoughts. And the response from the white students in the room was crickets. And that silence was hurtful to the African-American students in the room. Um, It communicated a lack of interest, awareness, or concern for the black students at Duke and for black lives in our country. I do think that we can hold out some hope for the disciples. Before meeting Jesus, it's unlikely that they would have even been eating food from a Samaritan town. So I think that, I think the Holy Spirit is beginning to work in them and that they're following Jesus closely, but they still have a lot to learn. That gives me hope for myself too. Um, So let's return to our earlier question. Why did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? Um, To answer this question, I think that we need to go back to John chapter one, verse 32. And this is the time when the Holy Spirit comes down and rests on Jesus at the initiation of his ministry. So Jesus' entire ministry was initiated by the Holy Spirit, not just the first day, but every day, because the Holy Spirit was resting on him. The Holy Spirit was compelling Jesus to do the work that he was sent to do, to break barriers, to tear down the dividing wall of hostility, to heal broken individuals, broken communities, and broken systems to reconcile all of humanity and all of creation to himself and all of humanity and all of creation to each other. I think the Holy Spirit also calls us and urges us to break barriers. It urges us to do it in the way that Jesus did. The Holy Spirit compels us to to draw closer to Jesus. And as we get closer to Jesus, he's going to lead us into the Samarias in our own lives and in our city. When Jesus broke barriers, it was radically outside the patterns of the world. And it was scandalous for him to be talking to the Samaritan woman. I think that the Holy Spirit will equip us 
to meet people at the wells the way that Jesus did. So I want to come back to the woman at the well and the way that Jesus was speaking to her. Um, I think there's a tendency to assume that Jesus' prophetic words to her are said maybe kind of in a snarky way. He was trying to catch her in her sin. Um, Maybe he was using his divine power to put her in her place and to call out her sin. Um, And while Jesus does call us to repentance, I don't think that's the main direction that this story is going. I don't think the story is so much about how bad this woman was, because we don't really know, but rather how Jesus is revealing himself to her. Instead of hearing Jesus' tone as harsh and sarcastic, I think that we can hear it as gentle and empathetic. It's true what you say, Jesus says. I hear your pain, is what I think he might be saying. You've had five husbands. It reminds me of a friend. I hope that everyone is lucky enough to have a friend like this who has a way of telling me the truth about myself so that I feel totally exposed, totally vulnerable, but I also feel totally safe and know that I am accepted. It's definitely the gift of truth and of grace, or of spirit and of truth. So through this interaction with Jesus, the woman at the well has the weight of all of her internalized gender and ethnic and religious oppression lifted from her. Jesus reveals himself to her So that for the first time in the book of John, Jesus says, I am he, I am, and reveals himself as the promised one. So at the well, we see Jesus tearing down walls. And this wall wasn't necessarily in Jesus' mind, and it wasn't a part of his kingdom, but the wall was in the Samaritan woman's mind and in the disciples' minds. It was a part of their culture and the way they were socialized and had been internalized into their identities. There are walls in our culture and society today that we had nothing to do with building necessarily, but we can either continue to contribute to those walls or we can work with Jesus to bring those walls down, to break the barriers. So at the end of our story today, we see the Samaritan woman is freed from her shame and she becomes the first mass evangelist. Jesus is proclaimed the savior of the world. The savior of the world. So in Romans 12, we're told that we shouldn't conform to the pattern of this world. And I think that pattern doesn't mean just individual sin but also, and ways of straying from God, but also means um, patterns such as the systems and structures that we build. Um, and those systems and structures are built by sinful and broken people, so sometimes they are also sinful and broken. Jesus, if Jesus is the savior of the world, He saves us from both of those kinds of sin. From the broken systems, the individual sins, he tears down the dividing walls of hostility. I think this is the good news that Jesus commanded his followers to bear witness to at the ascension when he commands them to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to all the ends of the world. He's already given them an example of how to enter Samaria. So in a moment, we're going to spend a few minutes in silence, silent reflection and confession. And today, we're going to have some words on the screen, because um, I would love to invite you to reflect in a specific way in response to this passage. So I'd love for you to think about how you relate to each of the characters in this passage. Some of us might relate to the woman, 
You may not have ever followed Jesus before. You may feel as though you're meeting him for the first time. Ask him for the life-giving water of the Holy Spirit. Some of us relate to the disciples. You've been following Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is compelling you to draw closer to him and to move towards Samaria, towards the wells in your workplace, on your campus, in your neighborhood, in our city. Ask the Holy Spirit to draw you closer to him so that he'll lead you into those places well with a posture of learning, openness, and humility as you approach these wells. So we'll have a few minutes of silence um, for, for reflection. Jesus, we thank you for your grace and for your truth. We thank you for the gift of living water. We thank you that your Holy Spirit compels us and goes with us and comforts us when we enter into uncomfortable places and uncomfortable spaces. We pray that you will grow us more into your image and likeness, that we will enter into places in Durham with the soul and the spirit of love and gentleness and compassion and empathy. We pray that we will do so in a way that glorifies you. Amen.